Board Games follows the entrepreneur Marcus Dreer and his determination to accomplish his goals by any means necessary, even if it plummets him down a deadly hole of no return. For all of my book lovers out there, Board Games is a simmering drama that boils into a gripping conclusion. And you can find Board Games 1 and 2 now on Amazon. And it's written by yours truly, so you won't be disappointed. You're now tuned into the Sociology Podcast, the exploration of the Shiverse, which encompasses Chicago culture, politics, history, experiences, legends, and stories from the hearts and minds of Chicagoans themselves. I love Chicago. That's why I started this podcast. You love Chicago. That's why you're listening to this podcast. This is Sociology Episode 49, and... As much as I love Chicago, I also love history. History was my favorite subject. If I didn't have an A in any other subject growing up, I had an A in history. I used to spend a lot of time at my grandma's house down on the low end in Bronzeville, and I was my uncle's sidekick as a kid. I used to walk with him everywhere. We used to walk to the park. We used to walk to the grocery store. I used to walk with him to the liquor store. I used to walk with him to the gas stations to play my grandma and her friends' lottery numbers. I used to walk with him to the fire station. One day, he pointed at this funeral home on 33rd and King Drive. It was called Griffin Funeral Home. He was like, you know what that used to be? I'm like, nah, what was it? He was like, it used to be a Civil War prison camp for Confederate soldiers. I'm like, really? He was like, yeah. And not just that funeral home, but this entire area, 31st, 33rd, 35th, King Drive, Giles, Calumet, Prairie, all of this used to be a Civil War prison camp known as Camp Douglas. Now, let's pause right there. Who was Douglas? Stephen Douglas was an Illinois politician, white man from the 1800s, came to fame debating Abe Lincoln throughout the 1850s in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. He was racist. He wasn't against slavery, but he wasn't with slavery either, so he say, but I really believe he was. That's my personal opinion, but nevertheless, he was racist because he felt whites, just like many other white men at that time, were the superior race and blacks were inferior. Stephen Douglas owned all of that land. That's why that community is now known as Douglas. It's one of the 77 community areas of Chicago, which Bronzeville encompasses. Camp Douglas came to after Stephen Douglas died in 1861. The federal government took over that land and they created a Civil War prison camp known as Camp Douglas. Now, most kids growing up in America, you're taught a couple things. You're taught that the North is good, quote unquote, the South is bad. South is for slavery. North is against slavery. That's what you're taught as a child growing up in American educational system. And when you're a child, you think as a child, but when you become an adult, you put away childish things. Or should I say lies? Because the truth of the matter is, north, south, east, west, it don't matter where you are in America, with three Ks, racism is going to be there waiting on you. And like I said on the previous episode, Chicagoans are just like everybody else, only more so. So in this episode, we're going to do a snapshot of Chicago with three Ks and a racism that exists here. Like, for example, my name is Antoine Taylor. Twiz is my nickname. But I'd be pissed off if you kept calling me George, because that's not my name. You kept calling me George Taylor, even though I told you that's not my name, but you still call me George Taylor. Why am I mentioning George? Because that's what the Pullman Porters had to go through. The Pullman Porters worked for the Pullman Company, which was founded by George Pullman, who was the epitome of an industrialist and a capitalist in the 1800s. George Pullman hired the Pullman Porters as ex-slaves. They were ex-slaves and he hired them on because he believed that they were cheap labor. George Pullman basically created the first popular sleeping cars, luxurious palace cars with comfortable beds, air conditioning, gourmet meals, all of that. 
And the Pullman Porters were the ones tending to all of these travelers and to these cars. As historian Larry Ty said, Abe Lincoln freed the slaves, but George Pullman hired them. But they were treated like shit, just as many black people of that day. The Pullman Porters, they had to pay for their own uniforms out of pocket. They had to make sure their uniforms was clean out of pocket. They had to pay for their own food out of pocket. They were paid very low wages. Majority of the money that they did make came from tips, which is why tips exploded across the country. It all started with the Pullman Porters. And the Pullman Porters couldn't even live in a neighborhood known as Pullman on the south side, which is named after, yes, George Pullman. <laughs> the Pullman Porters were also referred to as George because of George Pullman, the racist. So regardless of what their first name was, you called them George followed by their last name. It was very similar to how slavery operates. It was very slave massa-ish. You know what I'm saying? But in 1925, a group of them got fed up. They went to A. Philip Randolph. You know, they was like, hey, man, we sick of this. Can you help us form a union? A. Philip Randolph helped them. They they did what they did. And it took about a decade for them to come to a collective bargaining agreement with the Pullman Company, but they got it done. And a union known as the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters was created. It was the first African-American union to come to a collective bargaining agreement with a major corporation in the country. Now, you got to understand something. The Pullman Porters, they, you know, they started around the 1860s, you know, and they went on for about a century. Around 1890, it was about 15,000 black Americans that lived in Chicago. And around 1970, almost a century later, that number swelled to 1 million black Americans that consider Chicago home. And the reason why those numbers swelled was because of the Great Migration. Again, the North is good and the South is bad. A lot of black Americans, including my grandma that lived down on 33rd, came to Chicago because they were trying to get away from sharecropping they were trying to get away from the convict lease system all of these slaveries by another name they was trying to get away from the kkk more on that in a minute they was trying to get away from all these harsh conditions and go to the north for better chances and opportunities and chicago was a very popular destination for a lot of these black americans leaving the south that was in this mass exodus now with all these new black americans in the city on top of the ones that were already here a lot of whites ain't like that of course they was getting mad they was fearing for their jobs or taking our jobs and they just didn't like black people they didn't want to be around them so the chicago race riot in 1919 was one of the worst race riots of that entire red summer july 27 1919 a lot of chicagoans they went to the beach just as most chicagoans do every summer to this day because it'd be hot as hell up here Eugene Williams, a black teenager, he crossed the visible color line near the 29th Street Beach. White Chicagoans got pissed off. They threw some rocks at him, hit him in the head. He drowned. Black Chicagoans were pissed off that the killers weren't arrested. So, of course, tempers flared as the temperature rose, literally, and it was all bad. It, it, it just spiraled out of control. They say 38 people died. Over 500 people, you know, sustained injuries. But I'm going to read to you some detailed incidents that occurred during the Chicago race riot of 1919. So the details I'm about to read to you very briefly come from the book Binga, The Rise and Fall of Chicago's First Black Banker by Dan Hanger. John Mills had got off work at 5.30 p.m. on a Monday, July 28th, the day after the riot started. He was just going home on a 47th Street trolley when a group of whites hurled bricks at him and hit him in the back, knocking the wind out of him. He stumbled, he slowed to get his breath, and soon was tackled from behind and beaten to death. He fought to get up a couple times, but the mob was heavy like a blanket on top of him. Their body suffocated Mills. As he tried to get up one more time, a man clubbed him with a two-by-four, cracking his skull. Mills' eyes blinked and closed as he lost consciousness. The beating continued until Mills' body lay limp and twisted in the street. John Mills was dead. 
That's one of the documented 38 people that died throughout the Chicago race riot in 1919. And don't that sound very similar to how white mobs treated blacks in the South, in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Texas, all of those Southern states, all those Jim Crow states. Don't that sound very familiar? But no, this was in Chicago on 47th Street. Speaking of Jesse Binger, a lot of whites hated Jesse Binger because, again, just like the book states, he was Chicago's first black banker. He was very successful. He was a rich black man. He gave a lot of black Americans, a lot of black Chicagoans specifically, the opportunity to own homes. And whites didn't like that. His house was bombed some six times and he survived all of them. But the whites was really trying to get him up out of there. And back to the KKK. So a lot of these blacks in the Great Migration was trying to escape the South and the KKK, the terrorism that existed in those Southern states and those Southern communities. In 1922, the Chicago Ku Klux Klan had over a thousand members. It was the largest Klan membership in any American city at that time. The Chicago Klan had become so mainstream that it was not only accepted, it was celebrated. It was a coffee company that took out an ad in a local Klan magazine promising quality coffee and courtesy, all with three Ks. Charles Palmer, the grand dragon of the Illinois KKK, gleefully told the Chicago Tribune in 1924, we know we're the balance of power in the state. We can control state elections and get what we want from the state government. That's what the KKK said in the 1920s. Don't that sound like the KKK in Mississippi or in Alabama or in Georgia? It's very similar, but this is right here in Chicago. But Jesse Binger was very important because not only was he giving these blacks opportunities, he was breaking racial covenants. Now, racial covenants were laws put in place by state and local governments to keep blacks out of certain neighborhoods. In the book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, he details a couple of these racial covenants and restrictive covenants that was keeping blacks out of certain neighborhoods. For example, on the South Side, it was signatures on a 1928 restrictive covenant obtained in door-to-door -door solicitations by a priest of St. Aslam Catholic Church, the rabbi of a congregation, Beth Jacob, and the executive director of an area property owners association. Trinity Congressional Church was also a party to the agreement. In 1946, the Congressional Church of Park Manor, which is now an all-black neighborhood, sponsored a local improvement association's efforts to cancel an African-American physician's home purchase in a previously all-white neighborhood. On Chicago's near north side, a restrictive covenant was executed in 1937 by tax-exempt religious institutions, including the Moody Bible Institute, which still stands today, the Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and the Board of Foreign Missions of Methodist Episcopal Church. Other nonprofit organizations also participated, including the Newberry Library and the Academy of Fine Arts. And yet another example, the University of Chicago organized and guided property owners associations that were devoted to preventing black families from moving nearby. The university not only subsidized the associations, but from 1933 to 1947 spent $100,000 on legal services to defend covenants and evict black Americans who had arrived in its neighborhood. University of Chicago is in the Woodlawn neighborhood and now is primarily black. And that is also where the Obama Presidential Library will be standing in Jackson Park in a couple years. Lorraine Hansberry, she wrote The Raisin in the Sun. What you think that book was all about? It was about racial covenants in Chicago. Black Americans, black Chicagoans just trying to live their lives and obtain the American dream, but being harassed and pushed out of their own neighborhoods by racist whites. In July 1951, a black World War II veteran named Harvey Clark Jr. tried to move his family of four from the south side to the all-white suburb of Cicero. But when Clark and his family arrived, the Cicero sheriff stepped in and said, get out of here fast because it ain't no moving into this building. 
Thanks to a court order, though, the Clarks were still able to move into their new apartment, but they couldn't even spend a single night there because the racist mob greater than 4,000 had gathered outside and they was not having it. Even after the family fled the white mob, they still wasn't satisfied. They stormed the apartment, tore out the sinks, threw the furniture out the window, smashed the piano, firebombed the entire building, leaving the white tenants that lived in the building without a home. How psychotic, how barbaric do you have to be? to do those type of things like just the, it's, it's sick man i feel like they they're, they're demons they're demons they're aliens you know it's just it's crazy but this is going on in chicago ladies and gentlemen this is not below the mason dixon line this is not in texas this is not in louisiana this is in chicago a northern city because of renting to a black family these angry white racist folks decided to tear up the whole goddamn building even after the black family had left and then in 1966, that's when a man by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. came to the west side of Chicago. He said, it is reasonable to believe that if the problems of Chicago, the nation's second largest city at that time, can be solved, they can be solved everywhere. Initially, King was here to target the city's racist housing policies and its notorious slums. We're here because we're tired of living in rat-infested slums, King said at Soldier Field. We are tired of being lynched physically in Mississippi, and we are tired of being lynched spiritually and economically in the North. But soon, Martin Luther King Jr. would find out that Chicago was even more hostile to his peaceful efforts than a lot of places in the Deep South. On August 5th, 1966, King was leading a march throughout Marquette Park. That's on the southwest side of the city now. And in response, hundreds of racist white counter-protesters descended. They threw bricks, bottles, rocks. And one of the rocks hit King in the head on his right side, and he kneeled down in pain. And a bunch of other protesters, they shielded him to try to protect him from more rocks and bricks that was going to hit him. King was hurt, but he continued with the march. And afterwards, he said he has been in many demonstrations across the South. But he could say that he had never seen anything in Mississippi or Alabama as as hostile and hateful as the mobs in Chicago. The attack on King in that neighborhood on that day would not be the last racial attack in that neighborhood, Marquette Park. In 1970, the successor to the American Nazi Party planted his headquarters in Marquette Park. For the next two decades, it grew its base of support among the neighborhood residents and other white people who lived by, and together they fought relentlessly against any attempts to integrate the city. Speaking of integrating the city... In 1983, Harold Washington ran to become Chicago's first black mayor. And in March 1983, he campaigned in the all-white neighborhood on the northwest side with former Vice President Walter Mondale. And a white man so racist and so angry screamed at Mondale, you nigger lover. He was mad as hell to scream that. Like, why are you so mad, G? But anyway, the Washington campaign, they turned that into an ad. And they said, when you vote on Tuesday... Make sure it's a vote you can be proud of. And as fate would have it, on April 12, 1983, Hale Washington became the city's first black mayor with 51.7% of the vote. He just got by. Today, Chicago is still one of the most segregated cities in the country. Most black Chicagoans live on the south and west side of the city, while primarily most of the white Chicagoans live on the north side of the city, aside from a few south side pockets like Bridgeport and Mount Greenwood. And what's so notable about Bridgeport? Bridgeport is the home of former Chicago mayor Richard J. Daley, who was also part of one of the Irish gangs that instigated that 1919 Chicago race riot. Do what you want with that information. But there's so many examples of racism here in Chicago with three Ks is ridiculous. Racism is just as prevalent here as it is in the Deep South. There's so many sundown cities in Illinois, a state that was in the Union Army that fought against the Confederates in the Civil War to end slavery. Remember, the North is good and the South is bad. 
But in reality, everything is bad in this goddamn country. It's racism everywhere. I love Chicago. That's why I started this podcast. You love Chicago. That's why you're listening to this podcast. But we will be remiss if we didn't say that Chicago is one of the most racist and segregated places in this entire country. If you enjoyed this podcast, I ask for two things. Number one, leave a five-star review. And number two, pass it on to a friend who may enjoy it as well. And don't forget to subscribe to our other podcast, Mogul Motivation from True Stories Media.